When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Save big on Brunch for Mom, all in the Kroger app. Get 16-ounce packs of flavorful Angus 90% Lean Ground Sirloin for $4.99 each with a digital coupon. Then buy two, get two free on 12 packs of delicious Coca-Cola, Pepsi, or 7-Up, all with your card. Shop these deals at your local Kroger, less than five miles away. Or tap the screen now to download the Kroger app to save big today. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Prices and product availability subject to change. Restrictions apply. See site for details. Welcome you to Porch Talk. This is your host, Alan. And we have a very, uh, very talented guest. He's a musician. He's a composer, a songwriter. Uh, he worked with Washburn Guitars and PV Guitars for a time. And also, you may be familiar with some of his music from a little TV show that no one really ever watched or uh, heard anything about. Uh, some kind of show called Duck Dynasty uh, and many more. Uh, today's guest is Tony Pasco. Tony, how you doing? I'm great. How are you? Thank you for the <laughs> great intro. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, man, dude, I'm I'm uh, I'm doing well. And uh, man, I just. I got to tell you, man, it's uh, it's an honor to be uh, to have you on today. Thank you for having me. That honor's all mine. Thank you. I appreciate it. Well, right on, man. Well, I wanted to uh, kick this uh, can down the road. We're just opening up. Uh, you're a Chicago guy. Of, I am. I'm, do you got any kind of biases when it comes to a good pizza or a good hot dog? Yes. Um, <laughs> anybody from Chicago will tell you, you know, Chicago pizza is is you know the beginning and the end all you know new yorkers will tell you yeah you know they got they have pretty good pizza but when it comes to pizza chicago i i hate to say it we may but see everybody always gets confused with with chicago pizza. it's always the pan the thick pan pizza you know people are always oh it's too much it's too big you know it, mm -hmm. but P chicago is actually known for more of a thinner crust pizza that is a certain type of chicago pizza but most Chicagoans, we're not eating that big thing. You know what I mean? So, yeah. But yeah, you go downtown and there's a place called Dewey's or Uno's um, right downtown in Chicago. Best pizza. It's 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 fantastic. And then hot dogs. Now, you know, we, we're known for hot dogs here. You know, Chicago hot dog, um, you know, people have been known to, you know, to, to, to get arrested and, and, and to – you know, do many bad things if you put ketchup on a hot dog in Chicago. Ooh. On a hot dog, a Chicago dog has mustard, relish. You know, it's got the celery salt. It's got all the other stuff, but um, you know, jardinier, all that kind of stuff, hot peppers, but not ketchup. That's the you know one that thing you can find just about anything in Chicago, but not a hot dog. <laughs> that uh, th that's great, man. Because I know, like you know, down here, uh. We'll we'll do imitations, and you you lived in Meridian for a time, so you're familiar with it. But uh, you know, we'll we'll say 
we have Chicago deep dish pizza. And like my friends from Chicago is like, brother, that ain't it. And then, you know, someone will be trying to sell you a Chicago dog. And like you said, ketchup, brother, that ain't it. <laughs> no, it wouldn't fly in Chicago. They take it so personally. I swear. I have seen people. I mean, they just refuse. I have had, I have seen tourists come into hot dog places and where's the ketchup? And they're like, there's the door. Mm-hmm. No soup for you. <laughs> we're that we're that militant about our, our hot dogs, but you know, everything else, it's just in good sport. You know, it's in good fun. We're also known for beef sandwiches too. If you ever yeah. want, there's this place on my favorite place. Every time I go home, it's on Ontario, um, North downtown of the city. And it's called Mr. Beef's. I love this place. Um, if you're on a diet, forget it. You know, there's a, Chicago is no place for diets. But this place, it's a big, you know, you get that slice, thin slice beef, and you get it with the extra juice, and you get it with the hot jardinier on there. Man, you bite in it. If it's not dripping down your arm, you're, you're not doing it right. It is a messy, beautiful sandwich. <laughs> hey, man, to that, man. Well, yeah. uh, before we make everybody hungry, uh, I know. <laughs> uh, let's let's uh, let's get started with your story, Tony. Of uh, tell me a little bit about you. Of uh, you, did you grow up in the Chicago area? I did. I was I was born and raised in Chicago. My my dad was a professional musician. Okay, and back in the '60s, and uh, his kind of claim to fame was his band was the house band at the Playboy Club downtown Chicago back in the sixties. Okay. So I came, you know, so that's what he did. And then he, he, he got rid of that kind of life and then he kind of retired to the church. And then when I came up and he met my mom, you know, kids and all that kind of stuff. When we came up, um, my dad kind of left that world behind, but um, he was always a musician. He was always in bands. So growing up for me, it was always around. My dad was a lead singer drummer. So we, so we always had band practice at our house. So I was, I'm used to having instruments all over the place and, and having band practice. My mom said when I was a little kid, I would be down there. They'd be playing, going through the set, and I'd be on the couch sleeping at five years old. And she's like, how can he sleep with all this, you know, racket going on and stuff? But I loved it. I just, you know, for me, that I, was, I knew early on that's what I was going to do. <laughs> it was always It was always music for you then, huh? It was always around, and and my dad was a huge, huge influence. I mean, um, I can't understate understate that enough. He he was really my guardian, my guide. Um, you know, he he was the end all for me. I just wanted to do it because he was there, and it was a way for me to hang out with him and stuff. And even when I was learning, and I was a horrible musician, and I couldn't <laughs> keep up, and I couldn't play with his band or anything, because you know they were all like phenomenal musicians. But when you're a kid, you know, you're just trying to learn how to play guitar or something. Or I originally I wanted to be a drummer. And my dad, in his infinite wisdom, I had no hand and foot coordination, I guess. I, so I don't dad, either, dude. Yeah, right. And and so I'm jamming on his drums one night. And I remember he came in and he goes, you know, if you play drums, then we can never jam together. So why don't you play guitar? And mm -hmm. then this way we can bring them together, which is his like nice way of saying drums are not for you. You you don't have, you don't have a kit. You know, go try something else. But then guitar, I just gravitated to, and 
Yeah, man. I remember uh I remember early days, man. It was uh I was 15 and uh my best friend, he was uh playing the local talent show at our high school. And uh man, he just he just let it rip with uh Proud Mary by Critics Clearwater Revival. And I remember of uh, just going home that night being mesmerized. And I told my grandmother, I was like, I gotta I gotta play guitar. I wanna rock. And yeah. uh, you know, at that time I grew up playing baseball. And I would uh, play one more season of baseball before I would hang up the uh, the mitt and the bat, and I would just it would just be music for me from from then on. And uh, you know, even even in work, and I was always trying to be conscientious about like what kind of work I would do because I wanted to protect my hands because uh, guitar was uh, such a big part of my life that uh, I wanted to make sure I took care of my hands because like I really couldn't imagine not being able to play. Oh, I know. Actually, I was the flip side. I would. I, I wish I was an addict. Um, I love baseball. Um, I grew up when we were in Chicago. When we grew up, I grew up like a few blocks from Wrigley Field. So, um, hey, you know, yeah. So I grew up on the north side. You know, big Cubs fan, and and but I had no talent. I was a terrible baseball player. I loved it, mm-hmm. but I was horrible at so for me music was the only thing i had no other talents i i mean i wanted i would have loved to have been an athlete but i just it wasn't in me whatsoever <laughs> so i mean how would you say when uh when you started like tinkering with drums and then your dad would shift you over to guitar uh i think i was 10 i already played trombone i was in band um I started playing trombone for a couple of years and I was in marching band and all that. And I hated trombone. I hated that instrument. Tell me what's and, up with those trombone players. It seems like uh, those are just some of the most innovative and creative guys, man. And it's like, they'll always leave the trombone for a guitar. It seems like. Right. I don't know what that, yeah. You know, trombone reads bass clef and, you know, guitars, treble clef. And I don't know what that, what is for, for me, when when we were in school, they were like, oh, you have long arms, so you get to play trombone. I wanted to be a saxophonist because my dad always told me that um, the saxophone guys got all the girls. So right. I was like, well, I'm going to play at the big Barry sax. You know, it was as big as me at the time. I wanted to be like that guy, you know. And my dad loved New Orleans jazz. I mean, he was just addicted to it. So I grew up, like, listening to a lot of horn. So, but all the great horn players, you know, they were they were saxophone at the time or, or trumpet, and they put me on on trombone, and I was like, oh come on, and I, and I just never, and I was good at it. And they made me first chair, and I was just like, oh, I just didn't want to do it. But when I saw Hendrix play the Star Spangled Banner uh, in the Woodstock movie, that was it. I was like, okay, whatever that is, I want to do that. That's it. I want to be that guy. I just idolized Hendrix. So that's when everything changed. And that's when my dad was kind of like, you know, here I have a guitar because my dad played many played many instruments. So we had guitars and stuff around. So that's when he was kind of like, here, take it, you know, try it out. And I was left handed. So I kept turning it over. And he kept saying, no, 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 play right-handed, play. And I'm like, well, I'm, it's more comfortable to me the other way. And he's like, no, 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 no. And I wanted to be Hendrix, so I, I wanted to play left-handed. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, your left hand's your strong hand. He goes, it's hard to press the strings and stuff. He goes, if you play right-handed, you'll never have that issue. And I never did. 
He was so, so right. Uh, Tony, I'm left-handed. And uh, when my grandmother took me to the music shop, it was uh, DC Music here in Columbus, Mississippi, downtown. And I was I was talking to the cat at the time who was running the store, and he you know, he was sizing me up, you know, uh, three quarter full body, uh, acoustic, electric, and we landed on a, a great Alvarez that I still own to this day, and I, I still enjoy playing it. And uh, you know, he was like, "Well, you're left handed, but I've I recommend that you." learn to play right-handed and let me tell you why he said if you play the guitar left-handed uh when you get around other musicians you will always need to have your guitar with you because most people are playing right-handed and he said on top of that just like your father said he said all your dexterity and strength is going to be on your fret hand so that's going to put you at a heavy advantage toward other players yeah that's what my dad said. So you're the only person I've ever met. So you play right-handed mm-hmm. and you're a lefty. I, you know, we're so rare. I have never met another guy that, that, what that, how old were you at that time? I was 15. Oh, okay. See, I, that's fantastic. So you, so we both had somebody that said, no, 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 try it this way. And it's awkward, right? I mean, it was really awkward <laughs> for me to do it that way, but yeah. you know, the, practice the easier it gets you know yeah and i mean like still to that advice man i I can't tell you like how many times you know we would be you know at a high school party at the bonfire and i didn't have my guitar but a a buddy of mine did and you know every time that would happen or you know later in life in college you know up in a dorm room i wouldn't have a guitar but there would be a guitar there you know i could play just because i took that advice that's oh see that that was the same with me but you know i write right-handed they made me learn they made me like sit like this when in school because they said they told me you don't want to be a lefty in a righty world so they made me write right-handed mm-hmm. i have the worst penmanship you have ever seen i write like my wife says i write like a serial killer <laughs> oh no <laughs> Yeah, and I write weird like this. People say, "Why do you write like that?" Because I think I wanted to be. Because I was ambidextrous as a kid, so I used to write and color with both hands, and I still do to this day. But I, in school, they made me write right-handed, and it's weird to me. So I write like this, like a lefty. Yeah, and, dude. Uh, what they do now. My sister, she was nine years younger than me. When she got into school, they got rid of all that. So now she's a lefty, and she, you know, she she writes the proper way. Yeah, of uh, I, I just remember being left-handed in school, and I don't know how your your desks were, but I mean, it was made for a right-hander, so you had the armrest. But a left-hander, you know, your elbows yeah. was just hanging. Your it was hanging in the sky. And then uh, during this time, man, we didn't have like, uh, you know, they have all these things now for left-handers, but your your hand, if you were writing in a three-ring binder, you were always fighting with the rings. Uh, and then if yes. you were writing in, if you were writing in pencil, you were always smudging behind whatever you had done. Yeah. And so, yeah. I mean, it, it, it truly, yeah, being left-handed and like you said, in a right-hander world, man, it's, uh, you know, it's, you know, even in the Bible, I mean, uh, and you think about ancient times, uh, one of the judges, uh, he got away with killing a, a wicked king because no one thought he would be left-handed and where he hit his dagger was how a left-hander would have done it. Yeah. So, I, I mean, it's... I, and I, and it, it is weird. And and drums, I want to be over here. And maybe that was why I was never good at drums because my dad was right-handed. 
and he had the drums like this, I always wanted to be on the other side. It just seemed backwards to me. But, you know, that's just funny how that how that works, you know, when you're a kid and, uh, you know, or even in baseball, you know, yeah. they made me throw right handed. And I'm like, no, let me take the mid off. Here you go. Better. Mm-hmm. <laughs> But, you know, well, dude, uh, just just back to uh, you and the old man for a minute. So, I mean, you mentioned that uh, you would be in the the practice rooms. Would you would you go on the road? Would you go to these shows with him? Oh, yeah. When I was a kid, um, he had a band that, you know, and they play places around Chicago. I was his roadie. And like I said, he was a lead singer drummer for for a lot of the bands. And um I was this weird kid instead of going to like sleepovers and stuff. Ten years old and I'm set gays and I'm dealing with, you know, guitars and I'm restringing stuff. And I, to be honest with you, I loved it. I, there wasn't anything else I wanted to do. And, um, and my mom, to give her credit, like I used to always say, if you're with his, your dad, he won't drink as much at the gig. So, mm-hmm. so, <laughs> you know, but I used to sit behind him. Um, he would play drums and sing. And then I would sit behind him as a little kid and he would always get me like a kitty cocktail. Remember those kitty cocktails they used to make at the bar? Cause that was like my drink and then he'd mm-hmm. have like his beer or whatever, you know, and then I'd have like a little bowl of popcorn or something like that. And I would sit behind him and with the stick dropped, I had a stick right there for him or, he, I mean, I was, that I would sit behind him while he was playing and stuff. I just loved it. And, but it grew me for later, you know, it was just in me. I just had that. I got bit with that bug early on, I guess. Yeah, man, I couldn't imagine like just to be uh, exposed to such musicianship at a young age and really learning the craft. What were uh, some of the uh, the lessons and uh, values that were being instilled uh, in you at that time from him? Well, the one thing I can honestly say is I, I never got like when I got in the bands, when I got to be a teenager and stuff and I got into my own bands, all these guys We'd, we'd go to like to a gig and they're all at the bar and they're all over here. Or, you know what I mean? They're partying, they're hanging out with their girlfriends. And, this, and I'm like, guys, you, you realize we have to go and play. We have sound check. We got to make sure everything is tuned. Your, your, your gear's not set up right. You know, for me, the it was always the job. My dad never made me feel like this is a party. You know what I mean? The gig was never, it wasn't the sex, drugs, rock and roll thing at all with him. To me, it was school's in session. You have a job to do. You have to set up my drums. You have to make sure this is, and you have to run these cables and you have to tape them down. And, you know, I had like a a list of things that I had to do. So for me, you know, he was always like, it's up to the people to have a good time. We're here to provide the entertainment to make sure they do well. And then he also would kind of fill me in later, like, well, you know, if the bar doesn't do well, they won't hire us back. So if the owner doesn't make money, if we're not bringing people in the door. So then I started seeing, oh, wait, this is this is a profit deal. You know what I mean? This is a business going on here. So that's when I started realizing, you know, 
I started seeing it for, so when I got in the bands, then for me, it was like, we have to promote it. We have to get people in. We have to, you know, make sure the bar does well. We have to make sure this happens. So for me, that's how my mind worked. It, it yeah. was get, the job. It was how we made money. And, and that's what he taught me was when you go into a place and you book a gig, it's your responsibility to make sure you put on a great show for everyone else. It's up to make sure everyone in the guy. And he goes, you don't play to the people in front. He goes, you play to the guy in the back. And he goes, if that guy's rocking, everyone in front of him is having a wonderful time. He, yeah, man. And I was, oh, okay. And I, I guess, and you learn it not, you know, over time, you know, like with anything. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember like early days and uh, earlier bands, you know, late teenage years of, early to mid twenties and just all of those mistakes that you just hammered out. I was guilty of making some of them. Uh, bandmates were guilty of it. And, uh, man, I, I host the open mic here in town now. And, I've I've kind of stepped in kind of like a more of a, I guess a senior role and just trying to help bring up the next, uh, flock of musicians up and, you know, really help them out. And, uh, man, I think like the advice that you're giving right now is just incredibly helpful. I mean, cause like you said, if, if you get booked to go play somewhere, if you've never booked, if you've never been booked there, this place is taking a chance on you. And so if you want to be invited back, you don't need to, uh, you know, party it down. It's okay to have a good time, but just remember that you're the entertainment that night. This episode of porch talk is brought to you by our brand new sponsor, Caldera lab. If you go to calderalab.com slash porch uh, at checkout, you can use promo code porch and save 20% off your total purchase order. A little bit about Caldera Lab. It was clinically tested to work on dry, normal, and oily skin. Nine out of ten men who tried this product continued to do so, and they could tell a difference uh, with their skin. Uh, there's an improvement in the appearance of fine lines and wrinkles, elasticity, dark spots, skin tone, and more. It really helped me out with the crow's feet and the wrinkles on my forehead. I have been using the good for about a week now, and they also uh, sent me the clean slate icon and the base layer. And uh, I've never really been into skincare products. I was excited to give Caldera Lab a shot, and I'm glad I did. And so as you get a little bit older like myself, um, maybe you would like to give these skincare products a try for your face. And maybe you'll tell a difference just like I am. Uh, I'm 32, but I'm currently looking about 23. So uh, look out for me. Once again, if you go to calderalab.com slash porch, use promo code porch and you'll save 20% off of your purchase order. Back to the show. So I mean, it's it's tough, and so of uh, man, well, uh, just to move yeah. your story, or you you had something you wanted to add? No, I said it's a job. You know, that's how I always saw it. it was the work? It was the job. And and one other thing, my dad used to say, like you just brought up about if it's your first time at at a place, they're taking, like you said, they're they're taking a chance. You know, my dad used to always say, we're playing for the owner tonight because we want to be able to come back, uh -huh. you know, because the owner cares about it, how did the bar do and is his place filled? You know what I mean? So, so a lot of times if you don't, if you're in a band and you don't have a huge following, 
you're actually borrowing the following of what that bar has or that establishment has. But if you yeah. do a great job, if you do, if, you, if a band does a good job, you know, when you get hired that second time that the, those people are going to tell other people and it just grows on itself. And then the owner is going to love you. He's going to want you back every month. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So it, that's what, how I was taught. This is this is how it works. <laughs> yeah, man, I really couldn't imagine like growing up in like a, a city such as Chicago that, you know, in all these these bars, uh, they have histories and they're they're famous. And, you know, around here in Alabama, Mississippi, where I'm from and I've been kicking around for some time is like that built in crowd uh, numerically is just not the same as, you know, what it would be in Chicago. And so, I mean, I, I'm sure the numbers game was, it was way higher, but also the stakes had to be higher. Yes. Oh, there were thousands of bands. So yeah, you, th- you had to really, if you got into a place, you wanted to make that place, you know, your place because there were 500 bands wanting to play there. I mean, cause yeah, it's a city because there's so many more people that go to bars, but there's also so many more bands that play at bars. So, you know, everything is more, but it, the way my dad used to always tell me good is good. Good rises to the top. He goes, you can have a thousand bands. He goes, 90% of them aren't going to get it. They're not going to follow through. They're going to have issues and this and that. And he goes, and then you're going to get that 10% or 5%. And he goes, and those are the professional bands that get booked everywhere. They're never without gigs. They turn gigs down because if they do their job right, everybody wants them. And then mm-hmm. once you build a following, I mean, that's then it's it's fantastic. That that's way. one you thing know, about of. Uh, oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. That, that was it. That's it. Of, you know, uh, Macho Man Randy Savage, he said the cream is going to rise to the top. And, of you know, he, he was being theatrical, but, I mean, there is so much truth to that. And and you see it play out in literally every field. It doesn't matter if you're, you know, if you're blue collar, white collar, or if you're in the entertainment industry. I mean, you see that play out. But the ones who are getting who are getting the pay, the ones who are, are getting to play, um, the cream rose to the top. <laughs> But they're working at it. It's not coming easy to them. They're working. Right. At it. Yeah. Yeah. And we we forget that too. I mean, a lot of times, you know, it's it's easy to be on the sideline and be jealous about what someone else has or or what they're doing. But you don't think about all the work that led up to that moment, all the practice, uh, the load in, the load out, the fights, the arguments, uh, the egos that uh, bandmates have to put aside. I mean, it's there's a lot. It is a lot. It is a lot. It's a circus. You know what I mean? You're you're literally putting on a, the, the circus every weekend if you're playing it in a band. Mm-hmm. I mean, there's a reason why people slow down to, to watch the accident. You know what I mean? It's, you know, bands, I mean, the bet, you know, my, this was funny. I, I, I um, years ago, I got to play with George Clinton and the P-Funk All-Stars. And George said to me, I'll never forget this. He goes, when the band is at its most functional, when it's at its best, it is the most dysfunctional relationship you will ever have in your life. He goes, there's something about the dysfunction that makes it functional. And all bands are that way. The Rolling Stones, all of them, any professional band you see out there, there is an element of dysfunction that has to exist 
if all the guys got along and they're all kumbaya, those are the bands that never make it. I don't, <laughs> I don't know. There's something of the chaos that, I mean, that fuels the, the music better that, or whatever. It's just, it, it's just that way. I mean, that's so true. I mean, you, 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 you mentioned the stones. I mean, I even think about Led Zeppelin or, you know, uh, think oh, yeah. about, uh, uh, slash with Guns and Roses, and I mean, there's a reason why they hate each other now. <laughs> oh, they they won't stand. they won't get on the same stage. You can forget it. <laughs> and so, I mean, that's that's so true. <laughs> that's look at look at the success they had because of it. I had a band years ago back in the '90s, and I, I swear to you, it was a disaster. The band we got signed to Warner Brothers. We almost kind of hit. And we were opening for a lot of popular bands at that time. I have to tell you, I'm really glad that band, we we imploded. <laughs> you know, it's that typical story. But I couldn't imagine those people still in my life today after all these years. Me and the drummer, we're still tied because we always got along. But the other people in the band, if they were still, if I was still tied to them because we had some kind of hit or success or something, after all these years, they're terrible people. They're, they were horrible people then. But after all these years, it would be even worse. So in a way, you know, it's kind of like, gosh, some, some God or somebody saved me from, it made that that band kind of go and move and have better experiences because if that band hit, and I was still tied to him today. It'd be, I'd be miserable. Who knows? I, I mean, you know, I'd be a drink. You know, I'd be drinking myself. I don't know what I'd be doing. <laughs> yeah. yeah, man, I, I get it. So uh, I guess walking it up to there, like after, uh, you know, as you would grow up, uh, you're being the roadie for your father's band. Uh, what would life look like for you coming out of high school? Was there any interest in going to college or was, would you go to study music or what would you do? I did. I, I went to Columbia um, for a short time and um, I didn't, I, and I took music and I took some studio courses and stuff when I was there. And uh, what happened when I got out of high school, I got a, a little scholarship. I was in art and everybody thought I would go into art and I, it just wasn't, it just wasn't in me. You know what I mean? So being a professional, like graphic artist or something like that, I, I, I just, I just lost the, all the, the drive and the interest and stuff. And, you know, like one of my friends I graduated with, he works for Disney now. He's an animator for Disney and we were in the same class. So everybody thought, well, he and I would do kind of that thing. I just didn't have it in me. Like he did. He was, I mean, really talented and he just had that drive me i want i my only focus was i'm getting into a band once i get out of high school and i'm done with all this i'm going to get into college i'm going to take some courses and i'm going to really learn what i want to learn what i think i need because i wanted to be a professional musician i didn't know what that meant but i knew that's what i wanted to do so i, I knew i was going to get a band together i knew i wanted to record so i need to take studio classes i knew i wanted to you know, get into the music industry. So I needed business courses and stuff like that, or theory. And I, I knew I had to teach. I read music and stuff already, but um, I just needed that, that I knew it was going to be music. And I remember my dad, oh, we had a huge argument. 
because he was dead set against me going into music. And I'm like, how dare you? After all these years, you've been my biggest influence as a musician. And now I, this is the path you kind of prepped me to take this path. And now you're telling me not to do it. And, and in his defense, at the time, he was kind of like, this is a hard road. You know what I mean? Why don't you go, you know, be an entertainment lawyer? <laughs> you know what I mean? As a dad, as a father, he was thinking, no, 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 no. You're, I can't see you in clubs and just sweating it out and all like I did. He goes, it go, it's a nowhere dead end type of thing for a lot of, for a lot of musicians. It is. And uh, so, but as, as a 17 year old kid, I went, I wasn't having that. I was like, no, man, you don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. I'm doing. And I went and I did it. And, and it was hard. And I, like I said, I, I, I took some studio classes. Thank God I, I did have the area. Chicago at that time, I, I really had to um, say, you know, this is the early 90s. And grunge was just kind of breaking and everything at that time. And, I had a, a theory class, and uh, my my teacher was Dr. Kimo Williams. He was my theory teacher, and I'll never forget. I sat in this in my first day in my in my theory class, and I was in a and I and I just got the the Smashing Pumpkins were just coming out at that time. Their first album, Gish. You could buy it at the at the Columbia Books in Chicago, and I had I still have that CD still to this day. CDs were brand new at that time, and um, I remember I had it in my class because I you know I, I I bought credit, and I remember sitting in class and he said to me the teacher said, "Oh, that's Mr. Corgan. He took this class two years ago and failed," and he goes. And now he's got some band. You're never going to hear from him again. And I was like, you're wrong, old man. You don't know. <laughs> this is the future. And, and it, it, you know, so I remember that kind of becoming a thing. And I remember Chicago, when I got my band, we were called Shrinking Violet. And we had a girl singer and, you know, we did our whole thing and we played everywhere. And we became the house band in Chicago. And we built ourselves up. To that so that became kind of the main thing and school kind of was falling shortly <laughs> in the background as digging we were hungry and we were getting and we had a um and i have to have my drummer i don't know right we, we had a famous actress who was in chicago she was filming a movie and we used to do this cover of white rabbit by person and we had a demo we had a cassette at the time. I think it was a cassette and um, at our merch table. And she happened to be in, in Chicago. We're playing, but I, I didn't even see her. And I remember the drummer's brother, Brian, used to do our merch. And he's like, this actress came in and she bought your tape. Well, they, she ended up liking our version of White Rabbit, sent it to Warner Brothers and said, we want to use this song in this movie that she was doing julia roberts or somebody like that it was an actress it was right before she was before pretty women and all so um yeah you know in the back of our tape 
to Warner Brothers. They wanted to sign us to one of their subsidiary labels and stuff. And they threw us in the studio and they want us to do this, this version of White Rabbit for this movie. Well, I ended up getting cut and we got dropped and, and the band, you know, imploded after that. But um, that was the direction for me. It was like, that's what I wanted to do. And we ended up opening for the Smashing Pumpkins and Veruca Salt and, and, and a bunch of bands at that era in Chicago because, you know, we, they were all Chicago bands. So we got, I, we got really lucky. We, you know, we were on the bottom tier of all those great Chicago bands. But, you know, you were we there. were in the, yeah, we were in the scene at the time. So for me, that was like, you know, a drug dealer saying, here, here's your first hit for free. And now you got to pay for the rest of them. But I was hooked. And even when the band kind of fell apart and everything, um, I, I knew I'm like, okay, this is just a stepping stone. I had to eat some crow with my dad and everything. And I had to kind of go move back home because I lost, you know, we, we were broke and we made no money and all that kind of stuff. But it was that, that was the launch I, it, that showed me. And I'll never forget the guy at Warner Brothers said one thing to me and I'll never forget it. Cause I wrote all the songs and everything that we did. And he said to me, he goes, um, he goes, you could be very good at this. Don't give up. He goes, and just remember that, you know, it's a long road. You know what I mean? He goes, we find yourself, find what you do. He goes, you have, he goes, this was one thing. He goes, now use this and go somewhere else when then that'll be something. And then you'll use that to the next and the next. And that's just what I did. Uh, And, uh, but that was an amazing time. You know, it just, in, 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 you know, as a kid, 20 years old, and, you know, it was funny. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely, man. And just going back just a second, you know, when you and your father were having that talk about him not wanting you to be a musician, uh, I mean, what is it that they say? Uh, if you want to disappoint, if you want to disappoint your parents, go into the arts. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, you know, even, even if it's great, I mean, some of that has changed. And, I mean, we could go into a discussion of, uh, it, it's insane to me how much AI has influenced the art world here lately. Uh, you, I mean, you can you can literally have AI to uh, make anything that you want. You just give it a prompt, and it will animate or draw it for you. Uh, it will it can make music for you. Uh, I would argue it's soulless, and uh, I don't know if it'll do well. But um, what were people saying back when hip hop? was coming up and they were just using drum beats. It's kind of that same thing. So I know uh, we're sitting on the future and even like over the years, the way that we used to record of uh, if, if we are recording of, uh, and man, I, I used to get off on this. Uh, I, I mean, I made a, I made a porch talk record during COVID to where I traveled the Southeast and just recorded musicians in their kitchen are in their garage with that lo-fi sound because I was obsessed with the way that uh, these musicians would talk about how they got a particular sound off of a particular song. It's like, oh, you want to know how this this drum, how we got the drums to sound like this, or you know, and you even saw that in the uh, the the recent Bohemian Rhapsody movie about Queen. You know, all the crazy things that they were trying in the studio just to change the way their sound is, and so of. Uh, Man, I'm real curious to see, you know, what the next five to 10 years holds for us. 
I think personally that, and, and I always tell younger musicians this, yes, we have technology. It, technology is a tool. That's all it is. It's you still have the creativity. You know what I mean? Like that my only disappointment, to be honest with you, dark side of the moon was made with no technology. That album, you know, um, pet sounds by these innovative albums, you know what I mean? Um, were made with no technology, did the Beatles, you know, with no technology. And it was like four track tape recordings and they're flipping tape over. And it's just so barbaric really. And now we have all this stuff that's a push button and now nobody's creative. And that's the one thing I always try to tell musicians, you know, use what we have. Your creativity is still here. That has not gone away. Every generation has creativity. The hip hop thing. I remember when that came out, when the Beastie Boys, I was in eighth, I say eighth grade or junior. No, I, I think I was a freshman. Eighth grade License or freshman. License to ill, baby. That was innovative because it was a sound that nobody heard before. And, and to me, you know, anything new, people are going to push it and go, oh, no, 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 they're just ripping off drum beats and it's all James Brown and this and that. It's like, yeah, but James Brown's fantastic. They're smart for using that stuff. And they're look at how they're reincorporating it. I, I thought it was amazing. And I guess my mind, I'm, I don't want to say I'm open to a lot of just a lot of stuff I really don't like, but I have my own taste too. But I, I admire somebody's doing something creative and trying to not do what everyone else is. That bores me more than anything. I it, like when bands say when they can't describe their sound, that drives me insane. Come on, you're a rock band. Just say you're a rock band. Whoa, we're a rock with psychedelic and a little bit of funk in it. Stop it. Stop. You're you know what? You're a rock band. Just be a rock band. There's nothing wrong with that. Aerosmith was a rock band. <laughs> you know what I mean? When I was growing up, I mean, that's that's what we wanted to be. If I'm a hip hop artist, I'm playing hip hop. I'm the yes, the music industry has too many of these categories. And you can go outside the lines a little bit, but you're always gonna have your core. You know, some guys are just country guys. Maybe they're country rock or country blues or a little more folk, but there's their core is country. That's there's nothing wrong with that. Just be that and then expand upon it. You know, so and, and that's one thing for me. I was always very versatile because I always like to bounce around. And, and the thing I do for TV tends to work in my favor for being versatile. Um, cool. Like you're about getting that sound. I was, I'm exactly that guy. I was obsessed as a kid. How did, how did Zeppelin get the drum sound? How did Jimmy Page get that guitar sound? Um, ACDC, is that natural reverb? How did they get that room sound? How did Angus sound like that? Growing up, I, I had all those questions. And that's why I took studio courses where I learned how to do sound engineering and stuff like that because i too was obsessed but it, it was funny is going back i'm gonna date myself again but when i was in shrinking violet this is 1992 91 92 pro tools none of that existed nobody recorded on on computers yet it was all old school with the big boards and setting up mics and i remember doing an internship at a studio where i had 
you know, you had to line the machines up so they're together and all that. And I remember doing that. And then I remember my second year of college, I took the studio course and my teacher said to me, I'll never forget this. He walked in the first day and he said, everything that I'm about to teach you is going to be outdated next. Everybody in the class went, you're wrong. There's no way that's ever going to happen. You can't replace tape in the studio and this sound. And he goes, boy. <laughs> Next year, like 93, 94, ADATS came out and all this other stuff. And all of a sudden I was like, oh, my God, he was he was so right. So I had to jump on that and learn that but today for what i do you know everything i do is on a computer and a laptop and everything i, I doing it the way i always do and i think that's a mistake i think it, it takes away from your creativity it takes you as a musician you stop growing as a musician so for me i'm just kind of like hey this is the new thing all right pro tools oh okay oh plugins okay this is cool you know so i i i absorb it and i try to use it the best that i know how i'm not an expert by any means but you oh know. buddy um me me either of uh, i use pro tools i mean that's how i produce this podcast it's how i produce uh the music that i have online for people to hear uh and it's I still go for that lo-fi sound uh, because that's it. what, I, you know, and, and that's what I like. And, mm -hmm. you know, I've had, you know, friends of mine, other musician friends is like, of uh, you know, Alan, I'd like to work with you and like really produce this and make it, you know, make it sound like it, it came from a studio and you, you, you owe it to yourself. And uh, I was like, if that's you do you boo boo. But uh, you know, that, that ain't me. That, that that's not that's not really what I care about. Uh, you know, I'm I'm into the old blues records, and I'm I'm into like, okay, this was sound like it was recorded in a crummy hotel room. Most of them were right and left. That's all they had back then. And but even with like, and even with some of the recordings that I do today, I mean, I still got an old task cam. And yeah. only only half of it, the features work anymore. I mean, it's just old technology, but there's there's something about it to me that really I love the way it sounds. Yeah, I, I hear you. I well, I, I'll tell you this funny story with with, with Duck Dynasty actually. Um, when I had it, I did a record and it failed terribly. And um, but that record ended up being kind of my demo tape. For, for for this production company and this production company, my record label at the time said, you know, there's this hunting show, you know, so they want me and I was living in Meridian. So they're like, we want music from where you live, you know, in the south there. And I said, oh, OK, blues, bluegrass, you know, all folk country. You know, I, I go I live in, you know, where Jimmy Rogers is from. So, yeah, I could do all that. So I started recording this stuff and I sent some tracks in, and I'll never forget. They came back and they said did you record all these in a studio? And I said, well, I have a studio in my house. So yeah, I recorded everything in my, in my studio. And I'll never forget that the, the music supervisor of Duck Dynasty back then said, 
And this is the first time I ever heard that term, and you've used it a couple of times, lo-fi. He goes, is there any way you can make these tracks not sound like they were done in a recording studio? They're almost a little too clean, a little too nice. We want it to sound like, you know, with, you know, and I'm like, you know me, like with bleed and all that kind of, and they're like, yeah. Introducing Wondersuite from Bluehost.com, the tool that makes WordPress wonderful for everyone. Website creation is hard, but now with Bluehost, you can answer a few simple questions about your business and goals, and the Wondersuite tools will automatically lay out your WordPress website or store in minutes. Seriously. From there, you can customize your design, pick your brand colors and add blocks, no custom theme or coding required. You'll get content suggestions that you can keep or revise. And with Yoast SEO built in, we automatically help you get found in search engines. From step-by-step guidance to suggested plugins to an AI-powered help bot, our built-in tools make WordPress wonderful for everyone. Whether you're a beginner or a pro, you can join over 2 million Bluehost users. Go to bluehost.com slash wondersuite. That's bluehost.com slash wondersuite. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Just one mic in a room and this and that. We want it to sound more organic. And they, they told me lo-fi. They said, we want it to sound more lo-fi. That was the first time I ever heard that term. And I said, oh, well, sure. <laughs> we can do that, I guess, if you want. I mean, it's easy. So I started sending that in. That became my, you know, my thing um, with Duck Dynasty uh, was this open mic you know, experimenting with, with just the rooms. And stuff in studio. So I had that. So that kind of came back to me where I'm like, Oh, I'm micing stuff again. And I had a bat, I had a guest bathroom in my studio, in my house in Meridian and it had these really tall feelings. And when you go into the guest bathroom, it just echoed. And I was like, man, I'm recording all kinds of stuff in this bathroom. And sure enough, I mean, a lot of that, what you hear is not a, 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 a plug-in. It is that bathroom with these tall ceilings, that echo that you hear. It just had a very cool sound in that bathroom. And I might tons and tons of things in that bathroom. And, uh, you know, it's just kind of funny. Now you, he- I hear you watch Duck Dynasty and it's like, yeah, that's, that's me playing banjo, you know, sitting on the, on the, on the road in that bathroom. That's how I got that reverb sound or, or like the, that kick drum that you hear a lot of times you would hear this certain kick that I did in duck dynasty. Mm-hmm. You know what that, this was the best thing. Again, I'm from Chicago. I'm living in Mississippi. I have winter boots. A lot of people in Meridian don't have boots, but I had them in the closet. So I was like, well, I want to do this click. So I, ha- I I put the click on, you know, Pro Tools, and I put the click on of what I needed. And I went out, I went to that bathroom, I mic'd it, and just a 57. 
now. And I took that boot and I had it in the headphones with the kick and I just hit the boot on the top of that towel. So you get that muffled kind of beat, that <laughs> sound. The mic picked that up. I EQ'd it, of course, and compressed it. And, and then, so a lot of the kick, when you hear just kick kind of under like Dobro and a lot of stuff I'm playing, it's a boot on a toilet. That's all that is. Just me smacking a boot on a toilet, a winter boot. Yeah. That, uh, come back. That, uh, I mean, that's, that's so much fun and it's fun to be, I mean, that's just that creative spirit. And like, whenever you, I mean, I have, I have friends of mine who go about things in very, uh, different ways. And like, when you see them pull out, a kid's instrument or something that they're going to use on a recording or, you know, they're going to use, uh, Oh man, I've seen people use, uh, you know, horn instruments in strange ways, or even like, uh, play a harmonica a little bit less traditional than what you normally would. And, uh, I was like that, that there's something to that. You're, you're on to something. And like, I really like where your headspace is right now, <laughs> you know, well it got kind of crazy where, you know, and the more stuff I did like that, the more they would encourage me to do more things. So I went to Jeffrey's in Meridian and they make a kid's percussion set and it's all kinds of kid stuff. Um, they make a toy piano that you can plink on the strings. If you listen to duck dynasty, the, the Christmas special, they did two. Uh, I forget which one, but I did the music for both special but the christmas special in particular you hear like a little silent night with a plink 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 kind of piano it's this little 49 toy piano i bought at jeffrey's and all the little percussion you're hearing is this kid's percussion kit and you know most of the keyboard stuff is a 99 dollars casio i bought because that's i was like okay well they want these weird sounds they want this odd stuff and every time I'd send them like, oh, I have this rolling patch and it sounds fantastic. And they're like, yeah, you know, and then I give them a little toy piano and they're like, that's it. That's great. Yeah. More of that. And I'm like, okay. So <laughs> that, I mean, it was fun. I have to say, um, I, I wish more shows would challenge me like that. Um, but they were, they were wonderful. I, I ended up, that became a kind of a sound that, that they what wanted. Of what other doors would that open for you uh, as far as shows? Uh, I, I remember, you know, Duck Dynasty back before it was on A&E and then A&E picked it up and it seemed like everybody in the world was watching it. And so, I mean, like with you being on the credits, I mean, that had to open up other, you know, places like A&E or different, different people who were producing content be like, Hey, we got this guy named Tony Pascoe of he's, He's he's knocking it out of the park on this. You, do you think you could use him? You know. Well, and and how that works? Like I said, I was signed to a label. The guys that own my record label was down. They and those guys. They owned my record label, so um, they they were the ones that when we got the Duck Dynasty, the guy who was the music editor was just. a a friend of theirs so they started sending him all these tracks so and it was i wasn't the only one it was me and a few other writers so um that did duck dynasty and and you're right it it, it 
we came on board at, on season two. A&E picked them up on season two. They were on the, like the hunting channel or something before that. But they didn't have any of the music came with them because of some licensing issue. So we ended up having the right for, se for the first season that already aired. And then we had to write for season two and stuff. And, and it did. And I'm telling you, you know, it's funny. They told me it was a hunting show. You know, we had no idea it was going to be what it became. I mean, when we did the opening episode of season four of Duck Dynasty, I mean, we had 11.8 million people watching Duck Dynasty. No big deal. <laughs> I, I, we broke a, um, a cable record yeah. for the most reality TV show at that time. You know, I don't know if it still is, but it was insane. But you're right. Then I ended up, I got caught off guard, to be honest with you, because I'm just doing the work. I'm just recording and I'm sending stuff in and they needed tons of tracks. I mean, they would call me on a Friday. I'm number one. This is honest to God truth. I'm in the car. We need X amount of tracks. You know, and, and you can't say no. You have to be, all right, all right, hon, let's make a quick dinner <laughs> and get back. And I got to get back to work. And I've probably done, for Duck Dining alone, I think I'm around oh, well over 1,200 tracks for all 11 seasons Oof. that I did for Duck Dining. It, it was a lot of work. But yeah. – you know, um, Discovery Channel. And now we're doing music for Shark Week. Then we got Wahlburgers. Then we got Wicked Tuna. Then we got Pitbulls and Parolees. Then we got 30 for 30 on HBO. And, and it just, it started rolling. And, and all of a sudden I'm writing for all these different shows. And then some shows came later that would just take tracks that other shows didn't use. So then I wasn't even writing for the shows. They were just pulling from my catalog. So this thing turned into a whole thing on me. And, and I was happy. I was like, all right, I'll write for this. I'll write for this now. Now I'm over here writing this. And it seemed like every other day they're calling me saying, hey, this And another guy goes, hey, they want, you know, you know, hillbilly music for over here and they want this over here. And it's like, all right. <laughs> and you just say yes. And you go with it because I know how it is before I had all that, you know, people asking me for stuff. So I just took it as I could. And I just, you know, plugged away and it just kind of built upon itself. So I did over a little over 30 TV shows over these last few years and duck dynasty is really the, the biggest one. And now when it went off TV, then it went into syndication. Fifteen, 16 countries worldwide now. And when duck dynasty like debuted in Germany, well then the whole thing starts all over. And then when it's in the UK and then when it's in Japan and then now we have streaming and now on every streaming network and it starts all over again. But 
it's it, it it is a wonderful ride. I have to say, I I you know when people say to me about Duck Dynasty, do you care about this? This episode of Porch Talk is also sponsored by Manscaped. You can go to manscaped.com and at checkout use promo code Porch Talk, all one word, Porch Talk, all one word. Receive twenty percent off your total purchase order and get free shipping. Uh, Manscaped sent me the performance package 4.0 that comes with their beard trimmer, uh, the weed whacker, which is for those unsightly ear and nose hairs, and then the lawnmower, which is for you downstairs. It also comes with the crop preserver and the crop reviver. Uh, that is for um, it's for your genitalia there, there boys. Uh, it'll keep you from, uh, if you're ever been in the south in the summer uh, you know a little bit about how it feels down there and those two wonderful products will uh, help you feeling cool and keep you smelling good so you don't smell like a foot so go to manscaped.com and if they are the leading company when it comes to men's grooming they also the performance package comes with the most comfortable pair of underwear i've ever owned so if you have never given manscaped a try I highly recommend them. You can go to manscaped.com, use Porch Talk as your promo code at checkout, receive 20% off your total purchase order. And, uh, man, just look at my beard. If that says anything about them, should say it all. I got the best beard around, no doubt about it. Now, back to the show. I wanted to, um, to back up a little bit, Tony, back to uh, Columbia. And uh, what would happen after that? Uh, and how would you get hooked up with uh, Washburn Guitars? How that happened? Um, I was doing a, a clinic. I was teaching a lot. And that's how I was supplementing my income when my bands weren't making any money or anything. So I, I, would, I would work in music stores. I worked in music stores for many years. And, um, and I would teach give lessons and stuff. So um, I had a, a student that came up with this practice thing. They were called finger weights. And they were these weighted rings that you would wear on your fingers. And when you would do your scales, it would strengthen your hands. Kind of a neat idea. So he asked me if I would, he want, he, he started this little business called finger weights. So I went and I did some trade shows playing, you know, with these finger weights on my fingers. And, um, I was doing this little clinic thing and this guy came up to me and he's like, how come you're not playing a Washburn guitar? And I'm like, I don't own a Washburn guitar. This is the only guitar I own. You know, this is all I have. And he goes, well, stop by the Washburn booth. He goes, you need to have a Washburn guitar. And I was like, oh, okay. So I was just thinking maybe for the show, they were going to lend me one. And he did. He let me, you know, play a couple and stuff. And his name was Larry English. And he was the vice president of U.S. Music, which owned Washburn. So we were all from Chicago. And I remember he said, why don't you come out to Washburn? It was outside of Chicago. It was in Mundelein, kind of a suburb outside of Chicago. And he's like, come out to the factory. I'll give you a tour. We'll have lunch. And I'm like, wow, that's cool. Okay. So I drove all the way out there and I met with him. And he gave me the factory tour and showed me how they make the guitars and all this and that. And I met this guy, Doug Reynolds, who ran Randall Amplifier, because they were also Randall. 
And Doug was, you know, more my age and stuff. And he was a really cool guy. And so we had lunch and everything. I'm like, these are the coolest guys ever. This is really neat. Larry says to me, he goes, do you know what a product specialist is? I said, I have no idea. What is that? He goes, what you did for finger weights, I want you to do for Washburn. I need you to go and play our guitars and our amps. And you need to talk about why they're so great and what you like about them and don't like and blah, 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 blah. And I was like, I can do that. Sure. Yeah. I go that now that pays. right? <laughs> he goes, no, it's a full-time gig here. I'm offering you a job. And I was like, that's amazing. So I get hired. Now the problem was the owner, Rudy, who owned Washburn at the time, he had this rule. Anytime anybody gets hired, other than a management type of position, you always start in sales. So he said to me, I'm not sending Tony out on the road until he has sales experience here and he knows how we sell guitars and, and, and all that kind of stuff. So I was a little like deflated because I'm thinking I'm getting hired for one thing and now he's putting me in this other position. But I said, I got in it and I said, well, I worked in music stores. I know how to sell guitars. Well, he wanted me to learn their way. So I got, he put me in this cubicle and for like, I don't even think it was a year. I started selling over the phone, talking to dealers, you know, and, and talking about the guitars and stuff. And my numbers were really good. I, I loved it. To be honest with you, all day I'm sitting around talking guitars with, 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 you know, music stores and hanging out at Washburn. And these guys were really cool. So finally they said, okay, we need to send Tony out. So I started traveling. They, so for five years, they sent me all over the world to do these clinics. I'm all through Asia, Malaysia, um, China, and, and Germany. And I mean, I went everywhere. They sent me um, Australia. They sent me to do these clinics. And so when I was not traveling, um, I was at the, at the factory. And then they introduced me to artist relations. And this guy, Dave, Dave Karen, who is the artist relations guy, he and I actually, he and I have the same birthday and we're a couple years apart. So he and I kind of became friends. So then they said, well, Tone, when you're not traveling, you need to start working with the artist because Dave didn't have like technical skill like I did. So I'm whatever they need well i didn't realize they had dimebag daryl nuno bentoncourt they had kiss they had anthrax so all of a sudden now i'm hang i'm hanging out with these guys helping them with their rigs i'm hanging out with dimebag daryl setting up his guitars and 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 going to clubs and talking to his techs and it, it turned into this whole thing. And I'm like, okay, I like this. I'm not in a band. I'm not performing. But this was a whole other side to the music industry I didn't even know existed. And Dime, you know, I got to know him. And he was like, well, if you're doing clinics on my guitars and this and that, well, you need to learn this. And he would show me stuff. He'd sit me down. And he's like, hey, here's how I play this. And you need to learn this. And when you're doing clinics, you need to tell people, I showed you this. And I'm like, all right. Okay. You know, and, <laughs> and then I'm sitting with Nuno Bencourt. Nuno Bencourt's giving me a guitar lesson and stuff and showing me how to. So when I would go out and do these clinics, then I could talk. Hey, I was just hanging out with Nuno and he showed this. <laughs> people were just like, oh, my God, really? Yeah. So, yeah. People get really um, starstruck by that. 
Well, it was wonderful. And then you find yourself that you're kind of on that same level as them, you know, because now we're working together. You know, I'm hanging out with, you know, Danny um, Donigan from Disturbed. And so we're, we're hanging with all these kinds of people because it, now I'm hanging in artist relations. I'm playing. I'm doing the trade shows. These are the guys that 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 Washburn deals with. So I got to learn quite a bit and how to be kind of like, you know, in more of a helping, you know, type of position where it's about me. I'm not on stage being rock star Tony guy. It was really cool working with these other guys. And, and I, I learned so much dime that no one's going to tell you. That was probably, he's probably the most naturally gifted guitar player I had ever met out of all the famous guitar players I have ever met. Dime. We did a, um, I did a lot of, autograph signings and clinics with Dime and he gets so drunk because he'd, he'd drink these, you know, sevens and sevens and, you know, and he'd be, and he'd be so drunk. I remember one time you were doing an autograph sign and I had to hold his hand so he could sign his kids, his kids. Cause that's how drunk he was. I mean, he was just all hunched over, but any kid and he loved kids. Anytime a kid would come up with a guitar, he always had this rule. I'm not signing your guitar until you play a, a riff. You have to play, you know, Pantera riff or something like that. And these kids all, they all knew, Hey, I, I better come with my a game. And these kids would play it and he just would love that. But I remember one time he could barely stand up. He took this kid's guitar. We plugged him in. He played eruption better than Eddie ever played it. Stone drunk. I mean, the guy could barely stand, but he could always play. He had like perfect pitch or something. The guy was a freak of nature on the guitar and he played eruption. I remember standing just 10 feet from him while he's doing this crowd full of people. And we're all like, are you shitting me right now? Uh, are we really seeing this? I mean, he, he had the it factor and that's where I, as a guitar player, it humbles me because I'm like, okay, I may be pretty good, but I'm not that. That I mean, I is god-given talent yeah man i could only imagine like just being in those shoes and you are in somewhat of a sales position but you get to approach these musicians as a musician and, and so instead of like trying to sell them a product like you were you were able to talk shop and connect with them you know on a, like a different level and yeah. uh you know it, it's similar like with this podcast is like I've, you know, I'll listen to uh, interviews I've done in the past and I'll hear them get on another podcast and I'll, I'll listen to that. And like the exchange that we had here on this show was so much different than what they, what they got done on that show. And I was like, we just had a different connection, you know? Yeah. And that's wonderful. That's how musicians re relate, you know? That's why certain good bands sound, you know, when they get a new member, all of a sudden there goes the sound. That guy was, it was that four guys made that sound. You put a, a fifth guy in or another guy, then it changes. Mm -hmm. But Dime was amazing. You know, Nuno was, was absolutely, of course, amazing to hang yes. with. And that's incredible, man. And like Dime, especially, man, I remember being a teenager and just looking up to him, you know, just, I always thought he was a freak of nature, you know? He was amazing. He and the nicest guy. I mean, he was human. He had a lot of faults, but um, you know, he was killed the day before my birthday, and I found out the morning of my birthday. 
that he he had passed and the last and I spoke to him a few months before he he died and um and this and I was already at PV and I was trying and I called Don when I left Washburn to go to PV and the guys at PV offered me the product management position so I was ahead of guitars and amplifiers for PV so it was a huge step up for me and I Is called that- Don. Oh, go ahead. I'm sorry. Go ahead. I called Dime when I got the job at PV because I knew how much he idolized Eddie Van Halen. and We had Eddie. So I, I called Dime. I'm like, Dime, come on. Just come over to PV and, you know, we'll hook you up. And I, I'll never forget. He said to me, he goes, man, you got Eddie. You got the king. You don't need me. He goes, I like to be the big fish in a little pond, you know. He goes, but I I love you. He goes, congratulations. You're going to kick ass. Tell Eddie, you know, I love him and this and that. And that was the last time I talked to him. And then it was like six months later or whatever it was. I woke up and it was my birthday. I'll never forget that. And I, and I found out that he, he, he passed, he got killed. And I was like, that was horrible. Mm. But he was, uh, we liked him. Well, tell me a little bit about the transition from uh, Washburn to PV, and I'm guessing that's what would lead you to uh, the state of Mississippi, where uh, music began in this United States. And you know what's funny? That's exactly what Hartley said to me when I interviewed with him. I didn't, I didn't know anything really about PV. I mean, I thought it was good gear and everything. Um, I didn't really know anything about Hartley PV or anything. Um, when they flew me down for my interview, I had no idea I was going to sit with Hartley PV. And I'm sitting in his office and I was kind of freaking out a little bit. And I'm sitting there going, you know, this is hard. And you know, Hartley's bigger, larger than life kind of personality anyway. And he talks like this, you know, he's, he's got his whole thing. And <laughs> he, he made that exact same claim where he said, you know what, you're from Chicago. You may think you know something about the blues and about music and stuff. He goes, I'm going to tell you something. It all came from here. You know the aftermath. You don't know what came before. He goes, if you take this job and you come down here, I'll sh- I'll show you how it all started. What did and that mean? What did that mean to you? I mean, like. That sold me. I was like, here's one of the icons of the music industry telling me he's going to show me where all this happened. I had no idea. I didn't know about Jimmy Rogers and all this other kind of stuff. All I knew about Jimmy Rogers is that Leonard Skinner did a did T for Texas. <laughs> you know what I mean? I, but I didn't really know any of that stuff. I knew that Muddy Waters came from Mississippi and BB King came from Mississippi and, you know, and, and, and buddy guy came from Louisiana, but it was all from down here. And, you know, I didn't know. So I made the reverse track down from a music standpoint and hardly did he, he opened the floodgates and he let me run with the whole thing. Um, you know, unfortunately I think I was a little more than he was, he was used to, you know, uh, I came in with the attitude that it's better to ask for forgiveness than for permission. And Hartley's all about ask for permission kind of guy. And I just ran off the rails and he had to come after me a couple of times, like, stop, stop. You're, you know, you're, you're, you know, but I just, I waited so long to, in my mind, I felt like I waited so long to get to that position that now that I had it, I was going to use it to its fullest potential. And I, I think I did. If you look at the products I came out with in the five years, I was at, at PV. 
Um, yes, we lost Eddie Van Halen while, you know, just as I came on board, but that was a done deal. I had nothing to do with it. Thank God. I got no blame on any of that. But the first guitar I designed at PV was he, he said, Eddie's leaving, take the Wolfgang and make something else out of it. And I'm like, oh, great. Now I'm going to be known as the guy that ruined the Wolfgang. You, you know, I mean, it's all, yeah. but we, we end up making that HP special guitar, which we ended up winning a couple awards on that the Wolfgang never won. And that's the other thing. I, I just, you know, the industry and Hartley and uh, how many things happen. I mean, when you look at the 5150, the amplifier, it's the most successful signature amp ever. I mean, you can't take that away from what Hartley did and what Eddie did together. I mean, that 5150 is iconic. PV makes the 6505, and I was there that it, during that transition, and we helped turn it into the 6505. There was a marketing guy. His name was Tony, Tony Moskal, and he named it the 6505 because it was our anniversary at PV. It started in 1965, and then it was 05. So, so we called it the anniversary. That's why we, we did that. Um, but there was a whole other backstory. We were going to do a bunch of other stuff, but it became the 6505 and it's the most popular signature amp ever. And Hartley, I mean, God bless him. You know, he, Eddie wasn't easy to deal with and Hartley's not easy to deal with. And then you get these two, you know, beings that, you know what I mean? They're both used to have getting their way all the time coming together and not either of them. were going to give an inch with mm -hmm. each other. And I remember telling Hartley, you know, I mean, it's Eddie Van Halen. Eddie, well, let Hartley just make the amp. You know, he knows how to manufacture. You're a rock star. Go play shows. You know what I mean? No, no, no. I want it built like this. So you had these two guys that, you know what I mean? They were always going to bump heads. And after 11 years, it just it just went from bad to worse. So Eddie leaving was really a gun. But the products they created were amazing. The, the only downside to all that, that I will give you a little background, a plan for Eddie wouldn't sign off on anything. We had so many really cool 5150 products in prototype stages that Eddie would just never sign off on that, that now EVH is doing. So that was a little kind of like, come on, really? You know? Yeah. We had a we had this rack, and I played it. It's fantastic. We had this rack, and and it, it ended up becoming the Viper amp now, the modeling amp. But we, at the time, it, it was a fifty one fifty rack, and it was two. It was a it was a two, two or four rack space rack. It was huge, and it was the fifty one fifty sounds. It was every Eddie tone throughout his career with all the multi effects everything built in into a tube rack that you could put right in. And it was MIDI foot switchable, all that kind of stuff. And it was, and Eddie went in and he programmed a lot of it. He had it and he wouldn't sign off on it. And I'm like, this would, that was a home run waiting mm. to happen. I mean, it had all the wet, dry, wet stuff. It had everything, you know, like boss now has that 5150 thing. We had that, years ago at PV we had all that in a rack and it was tube and it was the 5150 we had a 
5150 uh, power amp that the rack would have gone in. I mean, we had the whole thing at the time, plus other amplifiers and all the uh, pedals and all kinds of stuff. And Eddie just wouldn't sign off on it at the time. Man, and, and I'll tell you this, just, just about PV and, um, you know, going to uh, the remaining juke joints and places where the blues still happen, such as the Blue Front Cafe or uh, even even around Oxford, Mississippi, uh, at the Fox Foxfire Ranch. And um, when I think about PV, my first amplifier and my first electric guitar was a PV. And uh, it, there was a reason for that. There, it, uh, PV, it was a very iconic thing to, to be playing. I mean, like you said, I mean, it used to be Eddie Van Halen, and you would look at the, the people who played PVs, and therefore you wanted to play PV. And when I got older, and I really got invested in the blues and I wanted to uh, I wanted to know the blues and I wanted to know what made the blues. And when I started digging into what an electric blues sounded like everywhere I went, it was PV. Yeah. That was that was how they got that iconic sound. Yeah. And so I mean, shout out to I mean PV for that, man. I mean, they were yeah. <laughs> Hardly is an, an amazing guy. I, 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 I will never say a, a, a crossword. Now, he's as faulty as the rest of us, you know, and, and he, he's made a lot of bad decisions. And, you know, he's human like the rest of us. But look what he built and look what he, you know what I mean? I, I give him a lot of credit. He and I, um, we had, you know, when I left, he took that very personally. And there was a bunch of other things that, that took place and stuff. So he and I didn't talk for a long time, but then we came back and, and, and we always had the music together. He, he's a huge lover of music. People don't realize, I mean, to do what he did. I mean, he really wanted to be a rock star himself. He just didn't have, like he'll tell you, I didn't have any of the talent to do it, but I could make equipment and I could make amps and this thing. He just had that technical thing in his head. Um, but you know, he, he loves music. He's, he, he, he's very knowledgeable about blues and folk and country. He, he loves it all. Um, you know, he grew up during that era of, of when rock and roll first started and, and he'll tell you going to see Bo Diddley where he literally had to cross the tracks. Diddley, you know, on the other side of town, and he, he wasn't supposed to be on that side of town at that time, but he had to go see Bo Diddley, and um, he was, and he was, and that, and it was that show when he saw Bo Diddley, I forget how old he said he was. He, you know, he's a wealth of knowledge when it comes to all that. He's really, he loves music, so I have a lot of respect for him. You know, he's not the easiest guy to deal with, especially when you work for him. He's extremely difficult at times. But hey, aren't we all? You know. Yeah, I mean, if uh, you know, if you got the name of your company named after you, I mean, the vision is yours, and what you want out of it is yours. And so, um, you want to surround yourself with people who have the similar vision as uh, as as what you want. And, you know, I wouldn't accept anything less. <laughs> I don't blame them. You know, you know what the turning 
me was when I left. Because like I said, I was a bull in a, you know, bull in a China shop when I was there. And I, like I said, I, I was full force. I, I, I had all these doors open. I had all this access to everything. So I took full advantage of it. And I remember one time Hartley walked me outside the building, the main building. And I went, ah, you're absolutely right. I, I totally get it. He goes, you work for me. It's not the other way around. If you want the sign to say Pasco, good luck to you. And that's when I went, you know what? He's absolutely right. If I can't give him 110% uh, from what he he's paying me, he that's what he's expecting. If I can't give that, then I If you had your own business, why couldn't other businesses hire you to do all the stuff you learned how to do at PV and Washburn? He goes, you have this resume. And I went, really? Oh, that's that's interesting. So then I started thinking, well, maybe some maybe it could say Pasco up there someday. So I so that's when I left and I started my own business, Pasco Consulting, and I ended up working for Blackstar. Um, I helped Blackstar become the amplifier company that it is today. I mean, when I started with Blackstar, they had six dealers in the U.S. And now they're I everywhere. Went, yeah, I went on the road and I started playing and I started showing off all these 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 amps, which were great. And the guys at Blackstar are fantastic, they're wonderful people. We all I mean, got along yeah. really well. They're great amps. They're great amps. And so then I helped them. And then I went to Mad Professor. And then I. Doing a trade show for, for Blackstar. I was at an AM show. Um, coming to the Blackstar booth. Let me show you these amps. I played the amps for them. And I did my little demo and Eric says to me, he goes, how come you don't have a record out? Do you have a band? I said, no, I go, I just, you know, do my own thing. And he goes, we're starting a label and we need some guys to, to, to put out on the label. Why don't you do a record? Why don't you send me some tracks? Do that. And that's where I wrote this record called Noise and they put it out and it failed horribly because <laughs> I thought I was going to be Satriani. Right. And I, and I just worked with Satriani when I was at PV, you know, so I'm thinking, oh, I could do Joe. I could be Joe, you know? So I did this whole weird record called Noise and it failed horribly. And, um, but like I said before, that album be kind of became my demo tape. And how that album came about was I sent Eric all these tracks, you know, these demos that I did in my studio at the house. And he came back to, and I had every intention of putting a band together and going into a studio to record these. Mm -hmm. And he came back and he's like, Hey, who's doing all this for you? All this production. And I said, dude, that's me in my house. And he goes, well, who's all playing? And I said, that's me playing all the instrument. And he goes, you're doing this album on your own. 
And I said, no, 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 no. I'm going to bring in a bass player and a drummer. And he goes, you don't need it. Do this yourself. He goes, if this is going to be a Tony Pasco record, make it all Tony Pasco produced, arranged. He goes, do this yourself. Don't rely on other people. Just knock this out. He goes, this is really good quality. He goes, what, you run Pro Tools? I said, yeah. He goes, well, any studio is going to have Pro Tools. He goes, just make it yourself. And that's what I did. I made the whole thing myself. I made a lot of mistakes on it. Um, I should have had, I mean, in, in all actual, I mean, you know, retrospects 2020, right? I should have brought in a producer to kind of come in and edit me along the way. Yes, this, not so much, you know, but no, I was the producer and I did everything, you know, so I put out this record and it failed and, and that's okay because it ended up becoming this demo tape for this production company. And, and that's how I got Doug dynasty. And, um, that and then it just rolled from there. So because I could have, I could do all my own production. That's when the guys at, at Warrant sat me down and said, "Listen, maybe putting out records like you're not." TV shows and and they'll pay you. It's like, hey, I like that. I like when they pay me. Let's do that. <laughs> so and that's and you know it just kind of rolled from there yeah you know so and i I had a knack for it i guess i i I did get kind of lucky very cool man well tony let me uh let me ask you a few more questions and uh we'll walk this out the door uh man just from of being a roadie for your father's band up to today for of getting royalties and still creating your own music of uh, man what's uh what's some of the the advice that you would give to a uh a young knucklehead who's trying to cut his teeth in the music scene uh i will tell you this you gotta like the work if you don't like the work You got to get into the trenches. You got to like that part of the industry. You can't be afraid that I'm always going to fail. If I'm not on stage playing, you know, then I'm not. Some road to stardom isn't a straight line. Road to stardom takes many twists and turns and ups and downs. And and the and what I would say is so when you're trying to create a music career, you, you want to kind of give yourself guidelines to the fact that, you know, learn everything, learn other people's parts. You know, if you go to audition, people will want to hire people that they like and that they can depend on. I've gotten gigs only because maybe I I was the only guy there or I, I was the only one that could read music. The other guys were 10 times better guitar players than me. But they knew, well, hey, Tony, he was he showed up early. He learned everybody's parts and he you know what I mean? He could read saying he's good enough of a guitar player. It doesn't come down to talent. No, you know, everybody has talent. Once you get to a certain point in the music career, everybody's talented. It comes down to do I like you? Can I depend on you? Are you going to stab me in the back? As soon as somebody else comes along, you're going to keep me, you know, going to let. It, it becomes that that part of it. So you got to learn how to talk to people, how to relate to people. You got to you got to keep an open mind. 
Um, you got to have that work ethic about showing up and, and doing the job. Um, you may get a gig where you're, you don't have a tech. Um, if, if, if those things fall into these, these pitfalls, I always tell people this story. It was season three or four. I forget which season the, the music, supervisor said to me, Hey, Tone, you didn't send us any banjo music last. And how about some banjo music this, this season? You know, you play banjo, right? Oh yeah. Yeah. yeah no. I never played banjo ever in my life. My father-in-law all of a sudden owned some Baldwin banjo he had in the closet. I pull it out. I pull to move the mic around so I can figure out how to play banjo. And my wife said to me, send that in. That's funny. That little hiccup riff you're playing. And I said, no, 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 no. I got to learn how to play this. You know what I mean? They're going to know that little riff that I don't know how to play banjo. And she's like, no, you don't know what they know. Just send it in. So I sent Hiccup, that little hiccup banjo thing you see with Psy, that became kind of his theme music. I got uh -oh. paid. Yeah. And in this glorious banjo playing, you know, instead of this pink, pink, pink kind of thing that I did. But and realize was when you put it on screen and he's walking. Rift and all this other stuff that I've gone to school for and theory and all that other kind of stuff. So, you know, just get out of your own way. You don't know what a hit is. You don't know what's going to hit. You know, just do it. Get the work. Do the work. Get it done and then move on. You know, um, that that would be my best advice to anybody. Right on, Tony. And uh looks like... Uh we're we're in and out. We're dropping. So I will uh, I'll close it down to one question, and we'll walk it out of the door. Is uh, what are you up to today? I understand that you have an album coming out, and uh, please plug your website and any way that people could follow along with your journey. I have a, a new TV show that's going to be coming out next year called Tony's Backstage Pass. And it's a behind the scenes of the music industry. And I, I interview people and we do performances and all kinds of stuff. So that'll be coming out um, next year. And we're doing a little bit of a crowdfunding thing that'll be coming out soon. So, so if you hit my website, TonyPasco.com, or if you want to see more of the show, it's TonyBackstage.com. The album I have is called Duck Days. It's actually a, songs from tracks from the show. 
And what I'm doing is I'm actually giving the album away for free. So as a, as a free gift. So when people kind of help us with this crowdfunding thing, you get the album as a free download. So Very cool. back on our social media, come to TonyPasco.com, Tony'sBackstage.com, or on my social media, Tony's Backstage Pass. See some of the cool things we have going on with the show and and please help us with the social media. We could really use your help and and come and grab the the, the album. It's a good album. It's actually all right. Uh, well, Tony, thank you so much. Uh, I would love to have you on again and talk shop with you again. I've really enjoyed this. I, uh, I have. Thank you. And uh, I guess this will do it for us this time. Uh, TonyPasco.com, everybody. Uh, go support him. Tony Pasco Backstage Pass. Is that right? Yeah, Tony Backstage Pass. And uh, next time you are watching a rerun of Duck Dynasty, uh, you know who made all those quirky sounds. <laughs> <laughs> Yep. Thank you so much. I appreciate it. Yes, sir. Mother's Day is almost here, and you can get her the most beautiful time-tested gift around. A watch she can wear every day for movement. Whether mom's into classic dress watches, rare and refined ceramics, or tried-and-true bestsellers, movement has something she'll love. And right now, you can save big on the best Mother's Day gift ever with up to 50% off site-wide during movement's Mother's Day sale at MVMT.com. Again, that's up to 50% off at MVMT.com. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.